Are you overachieving and still suffering when you're socializing? Do you feel like you're pretending and performing? Do you keep asking why? Why earn more achievements just to collect another win? Why pursue another plaque or medal or line item on my resume if it's for vanity's sake rather than out of passion? Why work so hard to capture the dreams I've been taught by society to want when I continue to find only emptiness? If you're asking yourself those questions, go to leoflowers.com or thrivewithleo.com and start your one-on-one coaching with yours truly today. Together, we'll help you find your purpose, your why, and your meaning. There's no need to go at it alone. Now, I know that you specialize in executive loneliness and helping, you know, execs avoid that workplace isolation. And and, and this is really relevant for right now with so many people working from home. And also, I would imagine there are people who work in an office, but because of how it's set up, feel isolated. You know, you have your cubicle, you have your office. Um, nobody comes to visit you at all. You just kind of got your face down. So even when you're surrounded by people, you can feel isolated. How are you helping people deal with the isolation? And it, first of all, what even got you into this? Well, so first of all, then uh, thanks, Leo. So what got me into all of this was that I was an executive like myself by myself just like you were describing there even in a cubicle or in my own office as you're working your way up the ladder it seems like you get you know more lonely because you get perhaps a bigger office but it's more in the corner with a better view but it means also puts you further away from your colleagues right and perhaps when your colleagues go for a lunch break well, they are sitting together during the day, they are chatting, so it, naturally they go together and then perhaps you stay behind and slowly, slowly, you know, you, you separate yourself from the rest and you become isolated. So that was, when I'm looking back then at my career, that's what happened to me and uh, why and have I then left the corporate world and what I'm doing now, I'm now su- arranging support groups here for senior executives and business owners where they can basically discuss the challenges they're facing in the workplace in a safe format where they all signed an NDA um, so that they feel that they can discuss the challenges and support each other and rather than being judged. So that's what I'm doing now. And really what I could see then, Leo, was that, you know, the isolation that I was feeling when I was an executive, I'm not alone. That is very common. That's what many are feeling. And that's why I'm now, you know, trying to make a difference and trying to talk about this because uh, the more we talk about it, we can remove the stigma surrounding this topic. And there is a way out. And I'm happy to share with you today, Leo, and the listeners, what we should do to overcome this. And perhaps uh, you want to say something before I go into that. Well, you know, first of all, I didn't think about this idea of like as you progress and and you go up the the hierarchy or the the the, the ladder right, and you get more promoted, you become more isolated and you and you're around less people and even during lunch, right? Where these people who were once your friends are no longer in your friend circle because you're making more money than them or you might be above them now you might be in charge of them so you go from being one of us to now you're one of them 
And I would imagine that like there's some grief involved there. Did you experience that, Nick? Absolutely, Leo. So just like many other executives, you know, I wanted to get the promotions and many times it can be a lonely affair to sort of elbow your way to the top right. And and I could certainly feel that the the, the higher I, I got, the more lonely I became. And it was indeed people started to become jealous. And also because Perhaps, you know, uh, you also cannot disclose everything. They turn to you because they expect the answers and so on. And my way was to not be vulnerable. My way was not to share too much. And, you know, instead, I was just making sure that I'm hitting the targets, making my bosses happy and less so about them. And therefore, you know, I created this isolation for myself. And that is a very dangerous place. And as I will share today, also, Leo, the only way to overcome this is by leaders being vulnerable. I should have perhaps kept my door open more often. I should have been engaging with the teams. I should have come out to them and welcoming them for lunch and, and really had this open door policy, which I didn't have, unfortunately. It's interesting you bring that up because I have a home office and my door is closed more often than it is open because of, you know, distractions and family. We have workers and things like that. But I have noticed in those days where I forget to close the doors and I keep it open that I'm still able to concentrate and get work done. And the amount of disruptions or distractions that I think would happen if I had my doors open don't happen as frequently as I thought they would. Uh, can you talk to us about this idea of keeping your door open and, and, and finding a place where, yes, there are times to keep it open, but then there are times to keep it closed? Yes, certainly. I think, uh, I mean, if you have a confidential meeting and so on, yes, you might need to have the door closed at that moment. But as you know, we are working, perhaps clearing emails, doing admin and so on. Wouldn't that be a time when at least you can have the door open? But more importantly, when the door is open, also don't just stay in your office. If you are having a team, you know, go out to your team, perhaps that means showing up a little bit earlier. And instead of going in to sit working and locking your door, take the turns and especially perhaps on a Monday morning to go around and communicate with your team, especially now with many people coming back into the offices. Now is a good time to reconnect with the team. And when you do that, uh, yes, it's fine to asking them how they are, but most likely you're just going to get a plain answer. Everything is fine. I'm okay. But what you need to do, according to me as a leader, is be vulnerable first. You need to disclose something and by building relationships with them. And, and that means that you might have to share sometimes the, the good news that is happening at your end, but sometimes also open up and share that, oh, by the way, my, my wife is, was hospitalized last week and, you know, she had this issue and so on. Because if you as a leader start to open up and you're disclosing some personal things, the, your team is most likely also able to copy you and they will start to be more vulnerable for you, which means that they're not hiding things from you. And that is the culture we want to create in a working environment where we can have open and honest conversation about the good things, but also the bad and the challenging things. I absolutely love that. And I want to peel back the layer a bit more on this open door policy, because I can see a situation where you have the door open, people come in, and then there comes a point where you got to kick them out. And sometimes it can feel abrupt where you feel like you're kicking them out or they feel like they're being kicked out and it's not handled very well. 
So how do you set a boundary with the open door policy when it comes to that moment where you might have to ask somebody to leave or, um, you know, maybe things escalate in a way where you're like, we need to handle this later. Can you, can you talk to us about how to even set the boundaries around when people are, you know, in your office and you might have to kick them out? Well, what I do actually in the mornings uh, before I start my daily or I, put an alarm five minutes before each meeting. So the, the, the important meetings I have may be physical or online meetings. Uh, an alarm will ring five minutes before. And that reminds me when the meetings are happening. But should you be then in an environment where perhaps you forget yourself because you're talking to someone, at least the alarm is ringing then for your sake, but also for the others. And then you have the perfect opportunity to say, oh, that's my alarm. I have a meeting now with uh, this person. Uh, can we continue our conversation over lunch? Or do you have time for a coffee? What about 3 p.m.? So at least you have something else coming and just making that alarm and, and, and that keeping you organized. And also you can then relax. And what I find is that when you have the alarm going, you have a peace of mind and you can focus 100% on the person who you're speaking with uh, until that alarm rings and that's being the excuse. Yeah, I think a lot of people think of using the alarm only to wake them up in the morning. And with that comes a negative connotation with alarms. But when we think about an alarm as a way for us to set and maintain boundaries, now it becomes something that we embrace and we're excited to use. Are there other ways that you use your alarm um, besides setting boundaries? No, I think uh, you can have a, the ring signal or the tone or the song or tune. You can obviously have something that perhaps doesn't sound like a fire alarm, right? You can make something that is a bit nicer that rings. And uh, what I've done then is because you can pre-program alarms uh, so I have a lot of alarms at 55, which is five minutes to the hour. So you can basically have enough of them for the whole day, like 8.55, 9.25, 9.55. So all you have to do in the morning is looking at your calendar and see, okay, today I have this one. Then you just click. So it, it only takes you, you know, one minute and the day is done. Then you have your peace of mind for the done for the day. So that is what I do with the alarm. And when it comes for alarms in the morning, Leo, I, I believe that uh, I, we need to be disciplined and going in bed. And the aim should be that we wake up uh, fresh without the alarm. The alarm is there in the morning as well uh, to wake us up in case uh, we didn't manage to get to bed early enough. But I'm trying, really, really trying to be in bed as early as possible. I read an article yesterday about Mark Wahlberg, he's going to bed 7.30 at night p.m. I'm trying to be in bed 8.30 p.m. You know, and, and definitely when I notice that when I have a, a poor night's sleep, that I do feel a little less connected to the people around me. I mean, no, no matter, you know, if I'm setting the alarms and I'm surrounded by people and they're all loving, if I don't feel rested and, and grounded and, and, within, and within my and you know, just recovered from the day before, then I definitely don't want to be around people as much. I, I want my door closed. Everything's too loud. I'm just a bit more sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And and also, I mean, um, and perhaps linking over a bit to addiction here, I, I, I fell into an alcohol addiction a couple of years ago, and that certainly isolated me the day after 
when you have been drinking, then the anxiety, the stress, the pressure and the hangover then certainly made you want to isolate yourself. You didn't feel like talking to people, you were irritable. And at least that's what I saw. And, and uh, that is not a good space to be in an office when you hangover. How did you manage to navigate through that addiction? And and I think this is relevant because a lot of times when executives do have their doors closed, I just imagine that's when they open a drawer and they pull out either their drug or their alcohol or their food or w- whatever thing that they're using to get their fix with. Um, how did you, and under such a high demand, high stress, work environment find your way to sobriety yeah that's a great question leo and i i was actually speaking to an owner of a rehab here in asia one of the leading ones it's called miracles and he said that about 10 percent of the c-suite so the senior executives according to him have an alcohol addiction so that's a pretty big portion of executives if 10 percent uh, have a problem with it so again i wasn't alone you know you're working long hours there's a lot of pressure and you need something to let the steam off and it should be exercise it should perhaps be a meditation prayer or all the other natural means but it's easy sometimes to shortcut uh, you're working long hours and the pressure there from perhaps colleagues and peers to go out for a drink and then that becomes a habit and that's certainly what happened in my place and that's what I see also with many senior executives, especially, again, the higher up you go, the pressures increase. And perhaps if you are a global director or a regional director, you're traveling from country to country, and it's a lot of uh, meetings, entertainment, and the, the evenings are late, and then you got to travel the next day. So you're burning yourself at both ends, and, and, and that is the pressures that come with this. And Indeed, as you say, that the, the people perhaps might close the door because they need to have a fix just to keep going. And for many years, I managed to hold it together. You know, there's the good old saying, work hard, play hard, you know, and that's perhaps which many people do. But eventually there comes a time when our body cannot physically and mentally handle this anymore. And that was, again, what happened to me. I had some uh, life events happening in my life. Uh, I I, uh, got a divorce and uh, I I resigned from a job and then I moved country. So all these things around me, some big events happened and and suddenly uh, the alcohol became a daily affair for me. Rather than having exercise every day, well, I just go to the bar and meet some friends instead. And with that, my health deteriorated until I reached, you know, the breaking point. And it was only when I hit rock bottom, you know, and I was uh, lying on my bed and sofa in 2018. And, you know, in so much pain, and I had written my will, my testament, because I thought that my life was over, I thought that this is the end. Uh, I wasn't necessarily suicidal at that point. I just knew that, you know, alcohol got me, I know I lost to this one, my body's breaking down, there's no way out of this. But as I reached that rock bottom point, I, I decided to speak up and I, I told my new wife who I just remar- I had remarried at this time how I felt. And from there on, I was back into recovery. So the, 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 the point here for me is just that fact that I shared how I felt internally with one other human being was the lifesaver for me. I love that the power of sharing and expressing what's going on for us 
talk to me about that conversation. Well, before we even have the conversation with your wife, what's going through your head in terms of the fear of having the, the conversation with your wife? If there was fear, what were the thoughts? What were the hesitations about telling her? What, what did you think might happen? Yeah, so at that stage, I hadn't told anyone how I felt about it. You know, I'd done everything I possibly could to protect it. I, I call it a smiling depression uh, in my book uh, uh, in the sense that, you know, we are very good as human beings to hold it together, to put on a show, uh, to selectively choose pictures for social media that we want to, uh, perhaps, you know, our family, friends to see that we're looking good and happy that we have it all together. Then internally we might be suffering in isolation, and and that again was certainly how I was. And then here I was, you know, new married, and I had certainly put on the best show I possibly could to date the, uh, this young woman uh, who became my lifesaver, and we now happily married for almost five years. You know, she, she's following close my sobriety date, and I'm living a life beyond my wildest dreams. And but I was scared, of course, to tell her how I felt because I was scared to lose her. I thought she might think that I'm completely crazy. And why would she stay with someone like me, you know, who, who is an addict, who has an alcohol problem? So I was, of course, very fearful. And I probably would not have told her. I would have tried to hold it together unless I was suffering so badly. You know, I, I had reached that point, which we call in recovery, the gift of desperation that that gift of desperation where you recognize if i don't tell anybody my life is over and i'm gonna lose everything anyway so the so this so why not take the chance on maybe losing her but also keeping her and then also saving my life yeah basically or leo and, and what i've done at this instance was what many, we hear many people do when they are preparing for a suicide i cleaned up everything i had i i have the documents you know still today i had very carefully written all my bank details all my login details passwords and everything in a document i had my life insurance my medical insurance my testament my will everything packaged very nicely i sent it to my ex-wife i had sent it to my parents and I had sent it to uh, my new wife, you know, and everything was very neat and very in order. It was like I was preparing myself because at this stage, you also don't want to be a burden to other people, right? Because you realize that you're so much in your troubles that you, you just don't want to be a burden to yourself or anyone. You just want to disappear, basically. And that was what I did with alcohol. I was drinking myself a day drinker, a night drinker at this stage, and I couldn't break away from alcohol. So that was indeed the stage I was in. So you, you tell your wife, and then what does she, how does she respond? Because clearly she responded in a way that you two are still married and you two are still together. And I, I want to highlight and, and, and really understand this because I think that there have been times where people who are alcoholics or, or who are addicts or they are suffering in silence with whatever they're doing, and then they open up to their partner. And then the partner does not respond in a way that is helpful or beneficial. 
and then they actually may follow through with their plan to end their life or they it, it spirals them down even further. How did she respond uh, yeah. to your revelation? Yeah, Leo, I, I'm blessed that she uh, responded, uh, I think, you know, with determination and action. She listened for a start, which was the half of the problem was solved by her just listening because as humans, we need to feel that sympathy that someone cares. And she did that. Um, but then she went into solution mode and perhaps that was a bit uncomfortable. She dragged me to a doctor, you know, and she was inside with me to the doctor because again, I was shy to tell the truth, but she was telling the doctor the full truth. And, you know, we need this test, we need this, this, this. So she went into action by taking me to the doctor. And then after that, she also brought me to a common friend we had who we knew had had some alcohol problems a few years earlier who had recovered and who'd been sober for a few years so we went to speak to her and asking her for advice and she then gave us a lot of phone numbers and linked us up with other people in recovery and from there on you know uh, it, it wasn't a smooth ride the first days because i was quite sick i had to be hospitalized and there was many things happening there the first two weeks and i, I didn't manage to stay sober right away for those two weeks but after i had been hospitalized when i came out um i i've been clean and sober for near uh, four and a half years now so again in, in summary it was really my wife showing care listening and jumping into action and leo to answer your question also what to do if the partner is not supportive. I think we need to be ready for that and it can go either way. And <clears throat> you need to then, I would say there's two things to have. One is to have, uh, you know, someone in a recovery program ready as well. Perhaps even before you tell your partner that you joined one of the beautiful anonymous 12-step programs, perhaps depending on your problem. And so that you feel you have a sponsor, someone who's there to support you, should it doesn't if it not go well with your partner, you are supported. Maybe even you make an appointment uh, to see that person after you have told your partner, so that you have someone, and then perhaps also have some phone numbers ready. Uh, there's a lot of anonymous support lines there, depending on the issues. And if we're talking about suicide, indeed. I'm a fundraiser and a volunteer myself for suicide hotline here in Singapore called SOS Samaritans. And there are many of them around the world and with volunteers helping to do a good job. I, I love that. And I really appreciate you sharing that. And I, I want to, you know, I haven't shared this with the listeners, but, you know, you are out there in Singapore. And so, you know, a lot of my, my listeners are here in the States. And so it's powerful to hear that someone in Singapore, um, it is also sharing that there are an amount of resources out there for you if you're struggling with mental health, addiction, uh, and, and suicidality. The you know with your book uh, and and talking about executive isolation and loneliness, what, were there things that you discovered after publishing it that you're like, oh, I should have included it in the book? Oh. That's interesting. Or were there stories or anecdotes that you're like, oh, maybe I need to write another one about this? Yeah, Leo. So once the book came out, you know, and I, it was released in April 2021. So we're still in the pandemic. There's still lockdowns going around and so on. So the timing was lucky, yeah, I could say, in that aspect. I started to write the book in 2019 before the pandemic and then releasing it after. So uh, there was a lot of 
thoughts indeed that I could have included and the book could have been a never-ending story, but you got to sort of put, draw the line somewhere and just finish it and get it out there. And the pressure was external. People wanted to get this message and the book out there. But somehow the the book continues, Leo. It continues to do today with you here in this podcast. And I've I also spoken on radio this been a lot of newspaper and magazine interviews and so on where I continued. So I would say the book lives on in that sense. Uh, and uh, in Singapore, you know, there's even more stigma than in the US talking about mental health and suicide and so on. So the media has been quite interested in finding out who's this guy who's writing about his problems, his challenges, he's talking about addiction, isolation, you know, even alcoholism. Who dares to even stand up and say that they had a problem with this? So in that sense, you know, everyone has been curious and very supportive as well. Now, you talked about depression, suicide ideation, and we talked about loneliness. How would you separate loneliness from depression? Because I think a lot of people just automatically assume depression because that we really have a limited vocabulary for what we're experiencing and what, what state or phase we're in. So when you think about loneliness, how is that experienced differently uh, from your experience than depression or stress or, you know, burnout? I mean, I, I know I, I really was adding more to the plate, but I, I think you understand the question. Yes, I do. And let's break it down and, and talk a little bit about this, uh, Leo. So, so, uh, and it's a great question again. So, of course, being lonely for a start can be a healthy thing. And, uh, you know, I I sent my son, he's 13 years of age. He went back to Sweden where he lives with my ex-wife. And I, I'm, I was left alone here in, in Singapore, you know, on Saturday night. And I felt, you know, there was something leaving me here and I felt lonely, but it was a healthy part of loneliness. It's natural, it's human, we need to be there. And in this instant, I didn't turn to alcohol or something to, to medicate myself to get over that. It's okay to feel lonely. It's a natural feeling inside us. And, and then Loneliness then can be in an unhealthy way, and we described and we discussed this before in the workplace. If you are, for example, in your office and you don't feel a connection with your team, you feel isolated, they're going out for lunch break, they didn't invite you, they didn't ask you, you feel that you cannot really also include yourself in the then you feel isolated, and, and that loneliness, uh, if it continues for a long time, can become chronicle and then you can start to have depressed feelings around it and even depression it can it can be something that is part of our lives it goes up and down and it's also linked to hormones and it's linked to perhaps our age and how we're evolving in our lives and again it it can be feelings and thoughts that can be touching on depression but if we have a support network and we have the tools and we have a way to talk about it, can it be to sponsor a mentor, a coach, or a support group, then normally we're coming out from that suffering of depression, uh, those depressed feelings, and we're coming back into living again. And it can be, many also do it uh, by giving to charity, donating time, so you get out of yourself, and you're supporting others by breaking the pattern, and then hopefully you don't become clinically depressed either. So we, and that is something what I'm working with a lot these days, Leo, uh, and how to break out of you know that self 
pityness, which normally leads to either isolation or depression. Yeah, it, to go from suffering to supporting, it sounds like that's the journey we all need to take because when we are in addiction, we are thinking about ourselves and our regrets and pitying ourselves and I, 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 me, me, me. And we need to move more into a they, us, we kind of connection. And and, and I think that we, we also have to remind, I have to remind myself at the very least, that connecting with people can be awkward. Connecting with people can be a little weird, you know, initially, especially making friends in a corporate setting. If you're new to the, if you, especially if you are new to the city or the area or the country and then new to the company, finding your way into the corporate culture so that you're being invited out for happy hour or birthdays and things like that and, and feeling included in the office celebrations. Um, it can be awkward at first. And I, and I think for a lot of us, if we can find a way to navigate that awkwardness, do you have any tips for the, the awkward initiation into, you know, trying to make friends at the workplace? Yes, I do, Leo, because I think, uh, you know, I moved to seven countries myself, uh, uh, which is quite extraordinary, I guess. And I realize a different pattern depending on what country I'm I, I'm moving to. And it can be the same with a workplace. When you first come into a workplace or you come to university or campus or whatever, the clubs and associations that you belong to make a huge difference. And let me give you an example here. When I moved to Vietnam, for example, I the first few days before I found myself a permanent home, I stayed in a hotel. And what I did... After work was naturally next to the hotel was a bar. I went in there and I met some friends and they became my friends for my time living in Vietnam. And those friends then got me to join the, the darts club there and the pool club. So here were my friends, you know, and my social life was around the bar. That's where I met them and that were the hobbies. And you can imagine that my health uh, was quite linked to that. And when I moved to Indonesia, I, I felt... I should not make the same mistake. So what I did instead is even before I moved to the country, I looked up running clubs, cycling clubs, triathlon clubs. I made sure that my accommodation was next to a sports center. And I had already made friends online who would meet me for a swim my first morning there. As you can imagine, my whole social life was very different because my friends in Indonesia then was surrounding the sports club, the running club, the triathlon club and the swim club. Uh, so my life for the next coming years was all around sport and so on. And those were my friends. So if you apply this to the workplace then or a university campus or whatever it may be, the clubs you belong to, the friends you make there can make a huge difference. And uh, you can always, you know, look for the people that you want to associate with or you can ask uh, the, your boss to hire you or something, you know, and share your interest and see if you can find some like-minded. The most organization have a running club or they have different kind of associations and otherwise seek this outside your workplace. And again, link to giving back to society, find an association where you can volunteer and you will meet other volunteers who are there to help others. So that's a few of my tips that at least have worked for me, Leo. I love that. Are there ways that corporations, companies can foster more connection, one with new hires? And then also with those who are being promoted 
to uh, another level where they might be isolated? Are, are, I know like a lot of companies have team building exercises, but are, are there specific examples of how companies foster connection uh, at the workplace? Yes, it should be. I mean, every company is different, but it needs to be. And if I'm just looking at my organization, which is a membership organization, then we're with these support groups for the executives. So while they have the support groups where they can discuss the challenges, we have a, a whole platform of social networks, everything uh, from a club for the people who want to read books. We have a cycling club. We have a running club. We have a coaching club for those who are interested in coaching to do peer-to-peer -peer coaching. And this should also exist in the workplace. I mean, uh, you need to have uh, all these clubs and societies, again, also like a university campus where people actually can feel that they have this belongingness. Yes, it's my company, but I have my subgroup inside the company with people who share the same interest. And this is very simple to set up. We have all these beautiful online tools now where we can create communities and chat groups so it is very important as a part of an onboarding uh, that you show the newcomer okay by the way if you want to you know if you like trekking we have our trekking association they go out every saturday for a walk you know at 10 a.m or whatever your interests are so you immediately feel included and you make some real friends there and this i would say it's the the responsibility of the HR and the leaders of companies to make sure that newcomers feel included and they're not just given an office and, and a job description. I love that. And is there a way for the, the new person on a block to, you know, if, if the company, say, doesn't have that kind of culture, right, where there are no activities, there's no groups, for whatever reason, it might be a very transient company, like they're transient colleges. How How would you... Uh, advise someone to introduce themselves to people at the workplace? Well, you know, I'm an introvert myself, Leo, so that doesn't sit very easily with me. So I, in my past, I would isolate myself unless someone would bring me. And if someone come and ask me, Nick, do you want to come to the canteen? Let's go for a lunch. I would feel a bit awkward. I, I would feel more comfortable sitting, having a salad in my office with a door closed. So I have to realize this and I have to break this pattern and get out of my own place, you know, and I, I do like to have an afternoon coffee. So rather than go and have that coffee myself, uh, I need to walk past, you know, the desk of a couple of colleagues and either ask them, do you want, I'm going to get a coffee. Can I get you one? Or do you want to come with me? So you have to go out of your own path and make some friends and then find out, you know, what are they interested in? Maybe it starts by inviting them for that informal coffee. And that's what exactly what I did. And I then you can have a chat to them, by the way, you know, do you, uh, what do you do outside of work? Do you have any hobbies? Uh, and if they say that they they are a runner, then you can ask them if you also run. Well, do you run? Uh, when? How do you run? When do you run? Do you have a running club? And then and then naturally, you know, you're getting some you need to start looking for that connection. And if it can easily start with a coffee but, uh, and being of service to them again, you know, walk past the desk and say, hey, I'm, I'm walking down to the coffee shop. Uh, can I grab you something? And at least, you know, you were there to offer something and they might be very busy and it would be perfect for them for you to bring a takeaway coffee. And when you come up with it, you can stand and perhaps have a chat with them for a few minutes as well. I love that idea. I never thought about that in terms of being of service, of asking people if they want a coffee, if they need you to grab them something as you're headed 
in a direction and and building that slow connection. And I think that's what we have to be reminded of also is that connections, friendships take time. For some people, you meet them and you immediately feel like friends and you hit it off immediately. But for a lot of people, especially if you're if you're introvert to introvert, it may take time unless, you know, you happen to be reading a book that they're reading. And then all of a sudden you're off and running to the races about, you know, the, the, the book that you, you two are sharing. Um, for people who work at home, I know that we've talked a lot about in the workplace, joining a club, joining a group, uh, introducing yourself, being of service to those around you. Are there for people who work at home, are there additional things that they can do to break up the feeling of being isolated? Yeah, and that's uh, uh, also very tricky if you're working remotely. And we do that now in my company. We have staff working across uh, in, in Indonesia. We have staff in Malaysia, Singapore. So people are not meeting physically easily. But but what we have done is we created some allowances for the team. So if there's some people who live in their region, they can go and have a karaoke night or they can go for a dinner and they can claim that to the company. So I think, again, it's back to the leader, back to the HR to really communicate clearly what are the rules, what are the parameters, what are the encouragements. So even if it's three or four of them living in that part of the country or, you know, uh, or in that district, then they can meet up they can have that and all you ask them is when you do this take a photo of your guy of yourself you know share it in whatever platform you have if it's teams or some other chat platform you know with a bit of a write-up so people can see what you're doing and so i think again it starts from the top by you know the company encouraging people to communicate and get together of course also having some uh, meetings either an all hand meeting every week on zoom or whatever it may be or once every second week or once a month where again you have open communication so they feel included they feel that they are part of something where you give company updates but also informal uh, perhaps you invite some keynote speakers or some talks where you're having something together all these things are very important in this virtual world and what we also created leo to make this uh, more inclusive with the teams is the different departments we have created a fail fast policy where we encourage people to do things and go out there and fail fast and share the learnings from it so we even have part of the budget for the various departments where they have this budget of for experiments and we want them to learn something from it and then share that because then you have this culture of people is not hiding it because when you're working remotely and you're not seeing people it's even easier to hide things perhaps from your superior and we want to change that we want to break that down and that's what this fail fast uh, policy at least have done for us you know, you brought up a very good point in terms of talking to HR because a lot of companies do have newsletters and emails that go out to address everyone. And so, you know, one strategy, and, and, and you talked about this, is talking to HR about making sure they include you in whatever, you know, the next newsletter so that you're being introduced to everyone. Maybe there's a photo of you, a little write-up of, you know, your favorite book, movies, hobbies, what you're working on you know, uh, where you've come from, et cetera, et cetera. So then now you become a face and you're not a stranger and you're not doing a cold open or cold introduction to the people that you work with. Was there anything that you wanted to add to that? 
Oh, I think that's great, uh, Leo. And in the newsletter, and what we do also, uh, an email go out to all the staff the first day with a photo of the person and a bit of a summary there. Uh, and so they are introduced in that way virtually because the old way would be to go uh, knock every door and perhaps introduce them in person. You go for a lunch together, which uh, uh, which would break down the barrier. When we cannot do that with email and yeah, the chat platforms is the best we can do and, and newsletters and so on. We talk, uh, you know, about isolation in the workplace and, and sometimes that isolation can extend um, at home where you start, if you're hiding things at work, you're probably hiding things at home from your significant other. What is, what do you find is a way to continually open up about things with your significant other that you may fear will lead to a backlash or loss or rejection or you know you just sometimes you know having those tough conversations with our significant other about things that we we may be resentful about or you know we need to uh change on um have you found ways of doing that well, I think the key is to look at ourselves and, you know, be self-critical of ourselves rather than criticize the partner. Because if you open up and criticize your partner, it's probably going to backfire. But if you're talking about your own mistakes and how, what you're going to do about it, how are you going to become a better person and what you're doing right now to improve? I mean, if you make a mistake, one thing is to apologize for it, but you also need to say, and this is what I'm doing to make sure this doesn't happen again. So your partner start to see, okay, uh, this person is admitting his mistake, he's showing he's doing something about it, and this is the progress. Then I think your partner will uh, be positive towards this rather than uh, constantly trying to hide it and then it, it, show, it blows up in your face. But keep showing progress. No one is perfect, right? And and all we can do is also to keep it clean on our side of the street. Yeah. So talking about keeping things clean, what does your prayer and meditation practice look like? Well, that's something that is quite uh, at the heart of any recovery program these days. And I'm blessed uh, that, you know, I came into recovery and I learned that because it's about, you know, getting out of yourself, it's deflating your ego, realizing perhaps uh, that you're not the center of the universe. And for many senior executives, perhaps, and the higher up you go again, uh, the bigger the organization, the bigger the role, it seems like the ego is higher. You have more people who've been looking after you, perhaps you even had your own floor, your own key to the lift, and you just, you know, everyone is greeting you. And every, every little touching point is just blowing you up bigger and bigger the ego. So, I mean, in recovery, it's all about deflating that. And it's it's a challenging part. And I've seen that in many, many senior executives who come in, you know, to recovery, that that is the, the major issue for them. And to then accept that they are not the center of the universe, to accept that there's something bigger than them out there, that's a good starting point. And only after that is recovery possible. And it's really about, you know, learning to hand over things to a power greater than yourself and that you don't have to run the show, you don't have to deal with everything yourself. And that is where the transition comes and, and recovery again uh, is possible and it can flourish. You've worked with so many executives around the world in terms of helping them deal with loneliness and isolation. And one of the things that I've been reading about is the power of touch. 
a physical connection. And when I think about the workplace, especially today, it seems like people are definitely more afraid of touching each other. You know, no one wants to be accused of anything. And, and, and now it's like we've gone from hugging each other to like a half hug or a fist bump. It's like we're, it's like we're touching fewer and fewer parts of, of each other, right? From the hug to the half hug to a fist bump, it'd be just like a finger touch. Um, how, do you incorporate touch in any way? Because I know you talked about joining groups and sports and usually we can get physical touch through that. But is there any way that you found of incorporating touch in the way you're working with individuals? It's very topical in that, indeed to discuss this, Leo. As we coming back from, you know, coming out of the pandemic into the offices again, and of course a period during the pandemic with the lockdowns and so on, people were avoiding uh, touching each other at any point. And I can remember in the recovery room, so, you know, before the pandemic, we did a prayer and typically standing in a circle where you're holding hands and there was sort of the the power of feeling that you're together, you know, and obviously with the pandemic that stopped, the meetings went on Zoom, then you're back into the rooms, but you separate yourself, you have social distancing, you're trying to keep a meter or two between each other. And we are still in that transition phase where perhaps people are thinking twice, you know, if, especially if it's strangers, it feels a bit weird when for perhaps two, three years, you know, we didn't really touch each other. We didn't get too close. And perhaps naturally as humans, uh, we, 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 we might want to keep our, our, you know, distance, especially for me coming and being born in Scandinavia and Sweden, that where you really keep a lot of distance from each other. Uh, so I've been quite comfortable during the pandemic, but now it's time to get closer again. And I have been to some recovery meetings lately where again you do the prayer you're holding your hands and you have to say when the, when the, the share is announcing okay let's now stand up and form a circle and hold our hands and do a prayer together you feel oh wow that feels a bit uncomfortable but we it's something we need to go through uh, and, and i think we need to come closer together as human beings again uh, but when it comes to the workplace indeed we have to be very very careful especially if it's about touching the other gender and uh, to make sure that you know we don't abuse this it has to be in a controlled manner perhaps and in a formal setting like i just mentioned where someone is saying okay now let's do this together uh, i other than that i i cannot really comment later on what is appropriate in the u.s also uh, is there anything about executive loneliness that we haven't discussed that you think would be important for the listeners? Yeah, I think um, I just want to highlight how common it is. Uh, when I started to write the book in 2019, about 30% of the senior executives I've served here over in Asia were suffering from loneliness. So 30%. And that's pretty much in line with the global statistics who says that about 33% of adults is suffering from loneliness. But then during the pandemic, when I did the survey again, the numbers had doubled to 59%. So we have to realize that, you know, the pandemic isolated us further, loneliness had doubled. We're now coming out of this, but people are not recovered 100% from, you know, having been isolated. People are perhaps more sensitive perhaps still not really feeling well. So we need to be there for each other. And, and that is my key message today. You know, listen to your friends, your colleagues, see if you can be of service to someone. And, you know, and my message is if you need help, ask for help. 
Uh, and then last two questions. One is, what are you looking forward to, Nick Johnson? Well, I'm certainly looking forward to uh, writing my next book, which is uh, building on the first one. This one is about the importance and the power of personal and professional relationships. So it's really about, you know, it will be strategies, how to connect and how to build up your support network, both at home and at your workplace. And then last question, I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be at the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Nick Johnson? Well, the most important is that you try to find someone to speak to. It's again, asking for help or speaking to someone. Uh, it can be anyone you trust. It doesn't have to be your partner. It can be a sponsor. It can be a mentor. It can be a coach. It can be a professional therapist, or it can be any of the helplines. Just make that phone call uh, and the, everything will change with that. I love that. And then uh, tell people where they can, the name of your book, where they can find it and, and plug all the things, Nick Johnson. Yes, the book is on uh, Amazon and it's called Executive Loneliness. There it is. Amazon Executive Loneliness. You can get that anywhere in the world. Get that shipped to your house right now. Uh, thank you, Nick, for tuning in. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling a 988 uh, suicide prevention number if you're in the States or if you're in Singapore or any other place in the world. If you're in Vietnam, if you're in Indonesia, wherever you are, there are international phone numbers for you in all of the show notes. If you can't call, you can text, you can chat, you can email there. There's someone somewhere who's willing to listen to you. Call, call, call the, your debtor, call, call, call an enemy, call anybody and, and let them know wh what you're going through, but start somewhere. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, Leo.